ahead and open up in prayer and we'll begin our time together. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for this time. We thank you for the cool weather, the seasons change and uh, fall is in, back in full swing again, Lord. It reminds us of the seasons of our life and how you change and you, you moved and you shift in different directions, Lord. And uh, so we uh, would do well to prepare our hearts, our minds uh, for the constant changing uh, seasons. And we just pray that you would bless us in our time as we look at the importance of what it means to become a man. And uh, no doubt this is uh, of the utmost importance in today's culture. So Lord, we look to your word we look to your truth and we look to the principles and the nature that it there contains and we ask that you would bless us and fill us with your spirit and fill us with the wisdom and knowledge of God. And we ask this in Christ's name we pray, amen. So, last week we dealt with womanhood, from a cosmological slant, and tonight we're going to do that a little bit with men, and the, the title of the message is Boy to Man, and um, this was actually written, so the, there was an article that was written by Albert Moeller, so I'm very um, indebted to him. He wrote this about 20 years ago, and it had a similar title. And the points that I'm going to bring up tonight are really taken from his article, and then I've kind of reworked them, and over the years I've rewritten them, so you're going to get an, another rewritten sort of version tonight. Uh, but this has been instrumental in my ministry, especially in prison ministry, where I've worked with men for so many years. And uh, men have, men in the prison system have had virtually no uh, fatherhood, no, no demonstration of what godly character is in a man, no examples of fathers to follow. So um, I actually developed a, a lot of curriculum based on, partly based on this, this article that he wrote so many years ago. So boy to man, the, uh, we talked about the feminization of society and how that's mixed with so many different confusing cultural signals. And how that's led, uh, you know, not just women, but also boys and young men to be uncertain and unaware of their masculinity and their proper role. And in the context of this confusion, boys are especially vulnerable. And so how that, how's that play itself out? Well, in a desperate search for secure male identity, many have drawn into sort of extreme distortions. So think of what we know as like kind of the modern hip hop, hip hop culture, which, uh, you know, males use violence, they use crime and materialism and objectification of women in order to demonstrate their supposed masculine strength. So in the search for masculinity, some embrace an intimidating sort of arrogant posture while others shrink into isolation and insecurity and demonstrate more feminine uh, characteristics. So neither one are coming to grips with manhood from God's vantage point. And so that's what we want to do tonight. So in the scripture, manhood is distinctively framed within the context of marriage and fatherhood. Unless a man is called to a life of celibacy and service unto the Lord, he is to aim for marriage and for fatherhood. And so it is, it is from this framework that I'm going to be speaking to you tonight. So in this culture of mass cultural confusion and gender and sexual identity, we now face the phenomenon of perpetual boyhood. And uh, this is what many males have embraced. And by refusing to grow up, many young men are functionally just prepubescent boys in man's bodies. An extended male adolescence has become normative for the modern male lifestyle and therefore the exceptional, or the rather the expectational bar has become set so low. So we, we really have very few uh, men in, in our culture to model after. So 
This just increases the great and vast responsibility of the church. So when does a boy become a man? This is an important question. In fact, it's so important that the building blocks of a society are determined functionally by whether or not its men embrace their God-given masculinity. And again, like women, and we said last week, we find that the scripture's answer to this question goes far beyond biology, and it really gives little to no sort of credence to chronological age. You know, if I said turn in your Bible to the age of when manhood begins, <laughs> you'd have a hard time finding that. Um, the Bible gives no magical number. The so-called teenage years are really an invention of the modern man to pacify young men and women and justify lazy parenting. Uh, there's no such thing as teenage years, according to the scripture. That's a modern invention. So if we want to pry a little bit, perhaps the best indicator of an age culturally speaking, um, without succumbing to the arbitrariness of modern law, would be the Jewish celebration of Bar Mitzvah, which takes place at 15, or, excuse me, 13 years old. So in Orthodox communities, boys become Bar Mitzvah at 13 and girls at th or 12. After this point, young men are held responsible for knowing and practicing Jewish ritual law, uh, tradition, ethics, and they're able to participate in all areas of Jewish community life to the same extent as adults. The time between puberty and age 20 has been considered the ideal, for, the ideal time for men and women to get married in Jewish culture. In fact, if you're a young man in an Orthodox Jewish community at the age of 20, you're old for marriage, quite contrary to how things are handled today. So Jewish culture, of course, is not a universal standard, but it does fit man's cosmology. And what do I mean by that? Well, nature is the best indicator of when God expects a boy to demonstrate the characteristics of manhood in the absence of a specific age in the scripture. Most boys enter into the physical characteristics of manhood during their pubescent period. This is when their body demonstrates the maturity to produce and the physical characteristics that embody manhood. Outside of nature, the Bible is virtually silent on this age and so we could say that the Bible defines manhood really as a functional reality, demonstrated in a man's fulfillment of responsibilities and a fulfillment of his leadership role. So with this in mind, I want to bring you uh, 12 marks of biblical manhood, 12 marks of biblical manhood. And who, who is this talk aimed to tonight? Who am I talking to tonight? Yes. Everyone. <laughs> it's multifaceted. Uh, first, uh, first and foremost, I'm speaking really to fathers. Um, fathers are the, are the chief people, men, that are responsible for their young men's, their, their boys' development into manhood. Then um, second place pales in comparison. Uh, second, I'm talking to the young audience of aspiring men and those in immediate in the trenches of manhood. Um, I'm also talking to mothers, to grandparents, uncles, mentors, disciplers. So that, that should cover it. So number one, the first mark, spiritual maturity sufficient. Spiritual maturity sufficient to exercise headship within a family. A boy becomes a man when he demonstrates spiritual maturity, sufficient to exercise headship in a family. The headship here is one of servant headship, as we were talking about last week, which involves assuming responsibility for those under a man's loving care. A man's authority in the home as husbands and fathers is blessed by the Lord when he gladly assumes this responsibility for others. And of course, he's doing this in the power of the, of the Spirit. God is clear about the responsibility for a man to exercise spiritual maturity 
and to exercise spiritual leadership over his family. Yet for a young man that is spiritually, uh, to, to demonstrate these spiritual mature characteristics, it takes time to develop that, right? It, it's, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. And, you know, it, it, it's apprehended by receiving the promises of God that are energized by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the believing young man must recognize that he has some remarkable divine resources at his disposal. A young man must be taught that men are commanded to pursue Christian character with all of their might. 1 Peter 1, 5 through, I'm, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8 says this, now for the, this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." Or Romans 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. So the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life include, but are not necessarily limited to, prayer, serious, non-devotional Bible study, worship, fellowship, and evangelism. You could say that these spiritual disciplines are something of the, the means that God uses to mold a boy into a man. This spiritual discipline over time by God's grace can be expected to blossom into biblical spiritual maturity that is necessary to assuming his God-given role. It is central to the Christian vision of marriage and it is central to family life. A man's spiritual leadership is not a matter of, as we discussed, dictatorial power, right? Yet, it is firm, it is deliberate, it is intentional, and it's not wishy-washy. It is sacrificial, concerned, and involved spiritual headship. A man must be ready to lead his wife and his children in a way that will honor God, demonstrate godliness, engender Christian character, and lead his family to desire Christ and seek the glory of God. So spiritual maturity is a mark of true Christian manhood. A spiritually immature man should never expect that God would graciously give him one of his own God-fearing daughters to somebody who is spiritually speaking just a boy. Number two, personal maturity. Personal maturity sufficient to be a responsible husband and father. Biblical manhood is always defined in terms of functions, in terms of roles, and in terms of responsibilities. So true masculinity is not a matter of exhibiting supposed masculine characteristics devoid of the context of responsibility. It's so important. In the Bible, a man is called to fulfill his role as a husband and a father. And as I said, unless he's granted the gift of celibacy for service to God, this is the aim of the Christian boy. He's to aim for marriage. He's to aim for fatherhood. So the role of a husband and father is so primary to manhood. Boys must be deliberately raised to see themselves as future husbands and as future fathers. They must be taught what to look for in a God-fearing wife and how to fulfill all the responsibilities God expects of a husband and a father. And so marriage is unparalleled in its effect on man and its effect on civilization. Boys must be taught what it means to be a husband, how to respect and honor marriage, and how to earn the respect and confidence of a wife. And again, these things take time. 
to develop, to cultivate. And this is so countercultural to today, where adolescent men are told to remain single as they go off to college or go travel the world or go pursue a career. They're told to sow their wild oats, and once they settle down, then they can marry, have children. I can't think of a more sub-biblical direction to send young men in. The commands to husbands do not come natural to us. Uh, Our self-centeredness and passivity have to die. They have to be crucified in Christ in order to fulfill these commands. So we want to keep that in mind. Boys must be taught about the responsibilities of fatherhood. Parents must cast a vision directly and clearly to boys about their future responsibilities, including the care and training and education and protection and discipline of their own children. I know with my children, I'm constantly talking to the boys about this vision of becoming a husband someday and becoming a father. And I often ask them questions. How would you handle this if you were a daddy? If you were a God-fearing father, how would you deal with this situation? Tremendous blessing. By the way, we, we must model this. We must model this. We must model loving correction. We must model uh, spanking in a God-fearing manner. We spank our children. Spank your boys. They need to be spanked. And just when you think you've spanked them too much, spank them some more. <laughs> Not out of anger. It's controlled. It's loving, correction, it's discussions, and it's filled with hugs and kisses and affirmation and prayer. And my boys will tell you that is a habit in our home by God's grace. So, and then repeat that, repeat that, repeat that, reinforce that over and over again. Why? Why do we have to repeat that? Because boys tend to be stronger-willed and stubborn, don't they? These are masculine qualities, by the way, the stubbornness. But they need the the proper channel by which to channel this, right? This this strong will. They They need a proper channel. They need a proper environment, but they also need a proper context and channel in which to do that. So boys in particular are short sighted, uh, as opposed to young girls, which tend to be more forward thinking. They tend to think in terms of longevity. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, they're, for example, you know, girls, what do they do? What's their first gift you give a girl typically? Or at least it used to be a doll, right? A baby doll. And they carry the doll around and they, you know, they feed the doll and they care for the doll and all that kind of thing. And, you know, they're, they're already talking about marriage. They're talking about marriage at a very young age. Girls are, boys are almost never talking about those things. They care, uh, they're not wired that way. They're bent towards instant gratification. That's the way boys are bent. They want it now. So they tend to be far more impulsive than girls. They need discipline, they need wisdom, they need patience, and they need self-control. So these fatherly corrections and instructions, coupled with a vision towards marriage and family, creates that context that will help lead boys to personal maturity. Boys should be taught to be visionaries, to be forward-thinking, waiting for the good things to come, and taught the concept of reward for patient waiting. They're to wait on the Lord. Boys must learn to aspire to be the kind of man a Christian woman would happily marry and children would trust and honor. Number three, economic maturity. Economic maturity, sufficient to hold an adult job and handle money. Uh, We're just like locked in with this Generation Z culture, right? That's the, the 25, I think it's, I don't know, is it 25 years and younger? They spend more money. Uh, the the the, uh, the demographic for isolating their propaganda and their 
advertisements and these kinds of things per capita are spent more on Generation Z than any other generation. They make the least amount of money. Why is that? Why is that? Because of the same reasons that we're mentioning. Because boys tend to be impulsive. They, marketers know exactly where to zero their advertising dollar because boys are impulsive. They don't want to wait. Um, they're inordinately susceptible to, to what we might call visual sins, uh, materialism, violence, uh, violence in gaming, sporting events, and a host of other consumer options. So uh, this is all intentional. So it's because boys are characterized by self-centeredness, economic carelessness, undisciplined lifestyles, impulsive behavior. So by Hollywood standards, this is all celebrated, right? The restless sort of vagabond who marches to the beat of his own drum, follows his passions, is, he's sort of cast as one being true to oneself, right? Uh, he's, he's regarded as sort of ruggedly free and uh, doing what he wants, living how he wants. But the Word of God describes that as slavery and the Word of God describes that as bondage and it ends in death. So Scripture describes our creational identity as that of worshipers and servants. So that means it's impossible for us to not worship and to serve but as Romans chapter 6 spells out, our service will be one of two possible masters and only two possible destinies. It says uh, Romans 6.16, 6, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? So service to the Lord is comprehensive. It involves every area of life managed according to the clear commands of Scripture. Include, this includes our money. Money is not a staple like food, but it is a resource to be handled responsibly so that we have access to the necessities of life like food, right? Shelter. When our money is managed properly, we can use our time, talent, and affections more fully for the advancement of God's kingdom. Instead of a life characterized by laziness, wandering from job to job, satisfied with doing just enough to get by, a real man knows how to hold a job. He knows how to handle money responsibly and to take care of the needs of his wife and his children. A failure to develop economic maturity means that men will live like slaves to necessity. They will be prone to giving their strength to others and in the long run will have less time for their wives, for their children, and for ministry. A boy must be taught to work, how to save, to invest, and to use money wisely. He must be taught to respect labor and to feel the satisfaction of a job well done and a dollar that's been earned honestly. In the absence of this work and this ethic that is created, cultivated, too many boys are instead there coddled and even drugged. Right? Give him Ridlin. You know, instead of a shovel, let's just cram a pill down his throat. They're entertained with endless stimuli. This leads to slothfulness, and it will be highly detrimental to their future prospects of, of being a husband and a father. So women by instinct are attracted to hardworking men. Why is that? Because they make good providers. Laziness and economic carelessness are marks of immaturity. And it will lead to greater temptation to steal. It will lead greater temptation to hoard. And it will lead to a stingy disposition. I'm reminded of Proverbs 30, verse 8 through 9. It says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is Yahweh? Or lest I be impoverished and steal and profane the name of my God, right? Don't give me more than I need, but don't give me less than I need. A boy needs to understand the dangers of the love of money. He must understand that it is, isn't how much money he has, but how much that money has him. He must be taught that money is not inherently evil, 
but neither can he be morally neutral to it. He must understand good stewardship and that God loves a free and generous giver. Number four, physical maturity. Physical maturity sufficient to work and to protect the family. So unless providence renders him incapable, a boy should develop the physical maturity that makes manhood visible. A boy needs to be taught to take care of his body, to demonstrate discipline and self-control in God-fearing eating habits. A real man is not ruled by his belly. He makes choices that are not given to self-indulgence and self-gratification. He must learn that personal integrity trumps his own physical sustenance. For example, remember David, parched David, right? Poured out his water before his mighty men who had risked their own necks to bring him a simple drink. So integrity is set forth before his own personal sustenance. It's popular today to sculpt one's body at the gym for narcissistic reasons. The Christian man can't settle for that one-dimensional approach. He must regard his body as a sacred temple of the Holy Spirit. With this biblical mindset comes the awareness that our bodies are ultimately for the Lord. They're for him. And that divine ownership of our bodies implies a responsible holy stewardship of our bodies. Of course, men, they come in all shapes and sizes. We realize that. And they demonstrate different levels of physical strength. But common to all men is physical maturity. Eventually, they will mature. And through which that maturity, the man will ultimately need to be able to demonstrate his masculinity in confidence and in strength. He's ready to put his strength on the line to protect his wife and children and to fulfill his God-given task, which is to rule his environment. So a boy must be taught to channel his developing strength and emerging size into a self-awareness and to uh, a responsible gentleness, right? You can't be gentle without strength. Think about that. So gentleness is strength mastered. That's what it is. So you have gross distortions and extremes in our culture today. You have what you might call the Napoleon syndrome, right? He's the little guy who drives the big truck. Or, or on the other side, you have an inordinate amount of hours spent in the gym, sculpting the physique. A man must feel comfortable in his own skin, but he must recognize the interconnectedness also of his soul and body. So he's doing this unto the glory of God. In other words, a mature man is not dualist in his thinking. He isn't a practical Gnostic that has little to no regard for his physical appearance or that uses his physicality for manipulative gain. A real man recognizes that adult strength is to be combined with responsibility and true maturity. So number five, and we'll have to move these, these a little quicker, but sexual maturity sufficient to marry and fulfill God's purposes. Sexual maturity. As a boy develops into a man, he becomes aware of his incredible sexual powers that God has put inside of him. In an age saturated with distorted sexuality and bombarded with sexual stimulation and confused by unbridled sexual passion, boys must be taught to bridle their sexual energies in anticipation of marriage. Boys should be taught from the scripture what God has to say about their sexuality, including their physical distinctions. Fathers, talk to your, to your sons. Talk to them. Educate them. And the word of God is the perfect environment by which to do that. And the conversations I've had with my boys already at nine years old have been through the context of just reading the scripture together. That's it. It is the best context for having these discussions. Boys should be taught from the scripture what God has to say about their sexuality, including their physical manhood. This embarrassment has led fathers to ignore their calling to lead in this area, and as a result, many Christian boys are not properly taught about their own sexuality and end up resorting to their peers and to institutional educators and magazines and internet porn. 
So we have to be deliberate here. And so even as our culture celebrates sex in every form and in every age, the true Christian man practices sexual integrity. He's well aware of the dangers of pornography and fornication and all the forms of sexual promiscuity and corruption. He must be taught to rejoice in the life of his youth and to harness and properly channel his sexual capacity and his reproductive power that God has given to him. Celebrate those things in the right and proper context, within the right and proper boundaries. He must be taught how to find delight in God and not in the creation. By the way, that is central to this issue. Delight in God is central to the issue of pornography. Uh, When a man is finding his delight in God, he is not concerned or consumed with things that will lead to idolatry. He must learn that he must work to woo and to win his prize in committing himself to find a wife, to earn her love, to earn her trust, and to earn her admiration, and eventually to win her hand in marriage. Today, boys are taught to find immediate satisfaction, just the opposite, and to take what they want, and and to do it outside of any kind of context for ethical marriage, family. So I I remember just one story years ago where this uh, young man was boasting about his... uh, service to his church and he was a good Christian man and all this and um, and he said that he had recently I just met him I was at a Starbucks and he said he recently had uh, separated from his wife and they've been separated for about a year but that's okay because they're going to get a divorce and he's already dating a good Christian girl and I said oh and I asked him are you having sexual relations with her (laughs) this was in the line at Starbucks and he says, he says, well, I love her. And so, yes, I'm, we're expressing that love and, you know, we're committed to each other and all this. And I said, well, that's interesting. I said, how is it that you can love her, but yet at the same time you're defiling her? He says, well, I never thought about it that way. I said, I know. We need to talk. I actually still talk to him today. I've been discipling him for several years, and his, his, his value system has changed since then, so praise God for that. So male sexuality needs to be harnessed. Otherwise, it's like a white-hot river of molten lava. A young man's sexuality must be bounded on all sides, or great damage will result The boy must understand that through his awakened sexuality, this is natural, it's good, and it's healthy, but he is nonetheless accountable to God for it. He must not become deceived in thinking that something so natural should be expressed without boundary. So he must master that desire or it will master him. And the scripture says, about those that allow their appetites to rule them, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Proverbs chapters 5, 6, 7, 9 have lengthy sections on the dangers which face a man who engages in fornication or adultery or who yields to the wiles of the strange woman. Number six, moral maturity sufficient to lead by example, moral maturity. So boys historically are not viewed as morally upright in comparison to girls. Boys are seen as morally adventurous, you should, we could say, rebels who seem to find themselves in trouble. They're always pushing the limits of dash and courage into recklessness and irresponsibility. Boys will be boys. That's what we're told. So as a boy becomes a man, he must learn God's moral character. He must learn how he bears the great responsibility of reflecting God in all that he thinks and all that he does. Therefore, he is a 24-7 tutor to all those around him on who God is. A man must be acutely aware that his example is sort of a running commentary on the character of God. 
And as we learned this morning, this requires that he learn wisdom. He learn wisdom. You know, Proverbs sets forth the idea that young boys, young men, don't have wisdom. I mean, it's just, it's just the theme that runs through there. It's, it's assuming that young boys don't have this wisdom. They need to cultivate this wisdom. They need to be taught this wisdom. It's not something that comes from a desperately wicked heart. And above all, regards to this moral maturity especially, boys must be taught to fear God. Boys need to hear their fathers say repeatedly, son, fear God. Fear God. This is a moral universe because its author, owner, ruler, and judge is righteous. And as creatures created in his moral image, we are bounded by his good and wise moral commandments. A maturing Christian male understands that moral cause and effect is inescapable. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap, Galatians 6, 7. The Lord will bring every deed into account, Romans 2, 16. Therefore, wisdom, as far as God is concerned, is inseparable from the fear of the Lord. And again, we were looking at that very point this morning. So in order for a boy to become a man, he must learn to stand upon his convictions, even when nobody is standing with him. He must learn not to give his strength to other men by sacrificing his personal integrity on the altar of his own personal interests. He must learn the principle of that which he regards as most important in life will ultimately become his chief evaluator. And if this is not God, then it's going to lead him to make moral compromises and to give himself over to the fear of man. He must learn not to accept power from others that is not inherently his to take. This moral manhood does not happen by osmosis. A boy's most important teacher is his daddy. And one of the father's chief responsibilities is to instruct and inspire his son by being an example of righteous thinking and integrity under pressure. So we, we live in a culture that is saturated with the constant drumbeat of you have the right to do what you feel, you have the right to feel good all of the time, and you have the right to choose right and wrong for yourself. A boy needs to understand why this message from the entertainment and social media is a sand. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lie. It's a, it's a soul-damning lie. How vital it is for a young man to be mentored by his father, or for that matter, a godly older man from his church. Systematic training in righteousness is necessary in order to escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. 2 Peter 1.4. Number seven, ethical maturity. Ethical maturity. And they make this distinction between ethical and moral. Ethical maturity is sufficient to make responsible decisions. So ethics are distinct from morality in that ethics is really the skill of translating moral convictions into life. Ethics is, you could say, the hermeneutics of firsthand convictions. A real man has been trained in decision-making. He can make rapid, quick decisions. I didn't say he make rapid, quick decisions that are right all the time, but he is trained to make, to discern quickly, to make moral discernment, and to make decisions quick, quickly on the fly if necessary. One of the most fundamental tasks of leading is decision-making. And what do we see today? We see the, the modern boy, young man, male, is completely indecisive. The indecisiveness of the modern male is evidence in, of really just a barren manhood, a boy who never, never quite made it. He never quite could make the decision. So, of course, boys need to understand the importance of making careful and well-thought-out decisions. I'm not saying they don't. But once they make the decision, he needs to hover over that decision and make sure that it sticks. 
God has much to say about a man and his oath. A man who is not as good as his word demonstrates a flawed personal ethic and tells the world by his pliable character that God does not keep his promises. So important. In order for a boy to become a man, he needs to know that God will test his ethic through trial to reveal where his heart truly stands. And uh, we were commenting in the uh, class this morning that some tests that God gives, they're designed for us to fail. <laughs> they're, they're, they're designed for us to fail those tests like Peter failed his, right? The Lord knew he wasn't going to make that test. He wasn't going to pass that test. But he was, he was teaching. He was maturing. He was instructing. He was disciplining. So how he responds to these ethical cracks is part of this maturation process. A real man knows how to make decisions and to live with the consequences of those decisions, all the while welcoming ethical scrutiny and resolving himself to repent when necessary. You see, a real, a real man is open to scrutiny. He's open to critique. He's open to criticism because his Lord ultimately is his master and he needs to be ready to repent when necessary. Children need to be taught this. Boys need to be taught this. Parents often leave their sons unprepared for this role by making all the decisions for them. Overvalidating their decisions is common. And by failing to teach boys how to think and reason in responsible terms. So fathers need to church, uh, excuse me, teach their boys how to weigh evidence, how to think clearly, how to prioritize values according to a biblical standard. And uh, my encouragement to moms is let, let, let your husband do that. Let him do that. Let your young men make decisions, even if it means they're going to fail, and you know they're going to fail. Let them fail. Let them fall on their faces once in a while. Don't coddle them. You're training them to leave the home. Remember that, right? They're, they're, they're being trained to leave their home. And if they leave their home and they have no ability to make decisions for themselves, how are they going to take care of themselves? So think of Jacob's mom who interfered with Jacob's initial instinct, right? And ultimately, she inserted herself into an ethical decision that Jacob was not prepared to agree to initially. And, um, you know, of course, that was pretending to be his brother and the manipulation of his father and all that. Jacob's gut instinct was to say no, but under the pressure from his mother's wisdom, he was convinced to break this ethic. So God honoring ethical decisions will end up serving a man in the long run. It will serve him in the long run. But a boy needs to learn that a high standard of personal ethic does not translate into instant gratification. He's going to have to trust God. He's going to have to rely upon God, not upon his circumstances or what he can see. This may mean a boy has to run away from companions who will tend to give approval for choices that are carnal, immediate, sensual, or vindictive. Sinful decisions are easy, instantly gratifying, and they're usually not met with much resistance, especially from their peers. But the long-term fallout is misery. An undisciplined young man will end up serving his sinful decisions in the long term, and sometimes he'll do that for a lifetime. The wisdom literature of Scripture deals with these realities at great length. Wise choices may be difficult in the short term, but ultimately they bring honor, they bring longevity, well-being, and favor. Number eight, uh, worldview maturity. Worldview maturity. Some of us don't often think in terms of a man having worldview maturity, but uh, he needs it. He needs it. He needs a, a worldview maturity that's sufficient to understand what's really important in life. 
We live in a morally upside-down world, as you know. This predicament of modern manhood is made all the more difficult by a culture that has an inconsistent, fragmented view of reality. This has brought about blinding ignorance into the full spectrum of issues that make up a society. Boys need to understand that God expects them to interpret and to engage their culture. Boys today can list, you know, their starting all-time greatest team in their favorite sport, right? They can tell you their top score in their favorite video game, but can, but can they tell you who the vice president is? The Christian man is called by God to interpret and evaluate issues from a, a full span of cultural issues, including politics, religion, economics, music, art, entertainment, education. And the absence of a proper worldview um, is a key mark of biblical immaturity. There was a study done from the Nehemiah Institute on worldview back in 2018. It concluded this, that through what they call their Pierce testing, that 80 to 85% of Christian youth group attendees consistently scored out as secularists, or worse, socialists. Only 10 to 12 scored as moderate Christians, as holding a moderately Christian worldview, and less than 1% scored as having a biblically Christian worldview. See, we, we can't just assume things. We can't just assume that they're picking these things up. I take my boys in, you know, you guys know they're, they're with us all the time. I'm not just assuming that they're gathering this information. I'm going home, I'm reinforcing these things. I'm talking to them, their mother is talking to them. That, that, that needs to be commonplace, that needs to be normative. And we need to encourage one another to do that because we can all be, be lazy in that regard. I know I can. So Adam's cultural mandate was not only to subdue the earth and to rule over all of God's creatures, but he was also to raise up God-fearing communities that would build all of life upon God's infallible world. Word. Not just the church, but all of life. This does not come naturally. Young men must be faithfully taught how to interpret the world. The godly man commits himself himself to study the works, the ways, the wonders, and the will of God so that he may order his life accordingly. A real man knows how to translate a host of issues into genuine Christian thinking. He must learn how to defend biblical truth before his peers and defend it in the public square. He must acquire the ability to extend Christian thinking based on biblical principles to every area of life. He is called to be a theologizer, which means that he is called to interpret his environment, interpret reality in theological categories. He's to exhort, he's to um, encourage, he is to speak into the lives of people. This is to be normative in a man's life, and a man that doesn't do that demonstrates immaturity. Number nine, relational or social maturity sufficient to listen to understand and to respect others. He must have a relational and social maturity about him. Uh, boys need to learn emotional and relational, you could call intelligence. How to master their temperament. Individuals who lack the ability to relate socially are nervous confronters. They have a hard time confronting. They struggle in how to compromise or negotiate and will often struggle in extending social graces and proper etiquette towards others. Consequently, they're destined to fail in some of life's most significant challenges, and they'll have difficulty fulfilling some of their most important responsibilities. This is a particular challenge for boys, because by nature, boys tend to be inwardly directed. And this is compounded by what we might call inward activities, such as the internet, television, gaming, not a lot of social activities taking place. Girls, on the other hand, are more naturally suited to social situations. They tend to be able to read emotional signals, to connect, and tend to thrive in a secure social environment. 
So boys need to be taught how to over overcome those natural tendencies and to be effective communicators, particularly in preventative and in problem-solving situations, right? When the heat's turned up, they need to be able to do that. A real man is to demonstrate emotional strength, stability, and steadfastness. He's, he must be able to relate to his wife, to his sons, and to his daughters, his peers, his colleagues, and a host of others in a way that demonstrates appropriate Christian character. He will not be learned by entering into, he's not going to grow into maturity here by entering into the private world experienced by many male adolescents. So parents, uh, and especially fathers, must draw their sons out of that natural inwardness, and they must demonstrate what it means to relate to others as a Christian man, how to address strangers, how to shake a man's hand. I remember practicing that with my boys when they were just three years old. They'd come out and they'd run down, big smile. They'd be all, it's a pleasure to meet you, Mr. Haffey, you know. They'd shake my hand. So we need to draw them out of that natural inwardness. Um, so, again, this requires a godly example from fathers and mature men, but also an attentive hand on the shoulder in order to take advantage of every teachable moment. Uh, there, I remember there'd be times where I would take my boys and, and um, you know, we'd meet somebody new and I would, I would say to them, you know, shake Mr. Such and Such's hand, you know, and they would, they didn't want to do it, you know, and then so they would stand there and it would become uncomfortable and I would say, son, Mr. Such and Such, shake, shake his hand, introduce yourself, you know. And this, <laughs> I remember one time, this went on for like a couple minutes. It was just really awkward. And, and the guy was there, was introducing. He says, no, he doesn't have to do that. It's okay. You know, he's trying to, to break the awkwardness. And I said, no, he does. He does have to do that because it's an obedience issue. And he's like, oh, okay. You know. So we need to think rightly about these things. Our equipping for effective relationships is, of course, a fruit of the Spirit. Um, spiritual fruit is the polar opposite of our natural tendency towards self-focus, self-promotion, self-seeking, self-gratification, self-vindication. So a, 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 more, a boy that's wanting to become a man, he needs to be quick to listen. He needs to be slow to speak. Um, they must be taught how to wear the garments of grace, as described in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, also Philippians 2, Colossians 3. These garments of grace are to define our relationships, they're to anchor our relationships, but they must be taught because they are not instinctive and they're not natural. They must be cultivated. So while the arena of the home is an essential and escapable focus of every man's responsibility, he's also called outside of the home into the workplace and to the larger world as a witness and as one who will make a contribution to the common good of society. He must be well-respected by outsiders and viewed as above reproach by neighbors, colleagues, others. So we could call this the principle of expanding sphere of influence. It's demonstrated in Deuteronomy 6. As a man is faithful to the Lord, he may be granted a godly wife. As he is faithful towards his wife, he may be granted children. As he is faithful to his family, he may be granted a greater contribution in his church, and so on. You see, this is that principle of expanding influence. This is how God bestows his blessings of grace. These fears of faithfulness extend outward like concentric circles. So the believing man who demonstrates spiritual leadership in his family and church ought to seek a forum for influence in his community as a God-fearing, vocal Christian man. And, and by the way, those are the kinds of men that, that cultivate the very conscience of our nation. And right now, our nation has lost its conscience. Men have become silent. So this inside-out approach is how God bestows responsibility to maturing men. 
He must first learn to provide for himself, then a wife, then his children, then the church, then the community, and so on. Boys must be taught to see themselves as shapers of society, shapers of the culture, culture makers, even as the Lord identifies the church as what? Salt and light. And number 10, 11, I'm going to get through these quick. Verbal maturity, verbal maturity, sufficient to communicate and articulate as a man. A real man knows how to verbally communicate sufficiently. As language has become hijacked, many boys and young men seem to communicate only through myopic slang and sort of Neanderthal-like grunts that can hardly be described as appropriate and effective communication. A real man must be able to speak intelligently, understandably, and effectively. He should be able to hone his verbal communication with precision and in a way that will honor God and convey God's truth to others. Now, I, I recognize that every men are gifted differently, right? This is a general pattern. To the best of one's ability, one should practice this. One should try to hone this to the best of their ability to be an effective communicator. Again, constantly talking to the boys about this. Don't grunt at me. Speak. Formulate your words. I'm hungry. Okay. <laughs> now, formulate that into an intelligent question. We need to teach them how to interpret books, how to diagram sentences, how to type, how to understand music, and if possible, even another language. It will contribute to their verbal maturity in ways that will benefit them for a lifetime. Parents must, must work with boys requiring them to speak up, to control the tone and fluctuation and volume of their voice, and to argue in a way that is appropriate to their environment. This respect for language must extend to an ability to enunciate words so that articulation is clear and communication is successful. And one of the greatest breakdowns in relationship is ineffective communication. This skill must be learned at the dinner table, in family conversation, and in one-on-one -on -one talk. And beyond the context of conversation, a boy must learn how to speak before larger groups. Uh, being able to overcome the natural intimidation and fear that comes from looking out into a crowd. And I, again, we recognize that all men are not going to be called to speak publicly, but they should be able to stand in the public square and give an argument to defend God's truth, to face their fears. And lastly, number 11, character maturity, sufficient to demonstrate courage, particularly courage under fire. Uh, I was at the bank the other day and I opened the door for a woman and she said, she said, thank the Lord that chivalry is not dead. <laughs> and I said, amen. Pray. All the glory goes to God because I didn't, I didn't, I certainly wasn't raised that way myself. But um, so chivalry used to adorn the pages of literature Tales of heroism, valiant knights that protected the women and children. And now it seems that those that, if you turn on the news lately, it seems that those that slaughter women and children are justified and encouraged. A boy must be taught that courage is demonstrated when a man risks his own life in the defense of others. In the face of evil, a boy must be taught how to righteously, to be righteously indignant and to take a verbal, if not physical, stand. As one leader puts it, quote, do you have a fire in the belly? Well, speak up or it will turn to pus in the gut. Today's, um, biblical character, virtuous character is mocked. Uh, it takes an incredible amount of courage for a boy to commit himself to, to chastity, to moral purity, to sexual purity. It takes a great deal of courage for him to devote himself to his wife alone, to raise children in the nurture and the fear of God. It takes great courage to say no to what the culture today says is natural. It's naturally, we have the right to indulge in these things, to participate. It takes courage to oppose the world's definition of joy, 
that having your preferences is your personal right. Christ, however, says joy is taking up his cross daily, taking up his cross daily and following him. That is the definition of joy. Boys need to be taught that. And then um, I'm out of time, but 12 is biblical maturity sufficient to lead at some level in the church. And, um, you know, when we survey the landscape of evangelicalism today, we were, it's, it's clear that there is a key problem in manhood here, and there's a lack of biblical maturity among the men of the congregation, and a lack of biblical knowledge and understanding that leaves men ill-equipped and completely unprepared to minister to others. The result is the self-refuting concept of a body that receives ministry instead of giving it. Boys must be rigorously taught the scripture, to treasure the scripture, to honor the scripture, and to understand what the Bible teaches. They must be taught to know the Bible so as to be conversant with themselves, to talk to themselves, right? Again, we do this often. Jonah, talk to yourself. Noah, talk to yourself. Say, self, no. (laughs) Arm, (laughs) I control you. You don't control me. They need to be conversant with the scripture in order to have proper self-taught. They must be taught how to rightly divide the word of truth, and they must understand and learn how to apply God's word. This goes far beyond the yes-man mentality of, of the modern churchgoer today who has given his strength to other men by accepting what is said simply because they're resting on the gut feeling or borrowed convictions of other men. Boys must be taught that to be a biblical man means that they will have to take a stand for their convictions with grace and humility. They must develop an attitude that says, I must understand the Bible, I must know what is in it, and I can't live without it. It is my food and drink. And we understand that God has appointed specific officers to the church and men who are specially gifted and publicly called. Every, but aside from that, every man should actively fulfill some sort of leadership role within his church. He should view himself as a minister. And when properly equipped by the word of God, he is unleashed to minister. For some men, this may mean a less public role of leadership than is the case with others. But nonetheless, Christ is building his church and he has called every true believer to build with him and none are exempt from building. Every man should be sensitive to a spiritual need in his church and willing to meet that need with wisdom that is without pitting personal responsibilities against another. So there is a role of leadership for every man in the church. Boys need to be taught that. A man should know how to pray confidently with others, before others, and be fluent with the gospel so as to minister in season and out of season. Boys need to see this taking place in the church. A church that is faithful to pray together individually and corporately in a meaningful way and speak the truth to one another in love and call one another to holiness and love provides a faithful example to our boys and to our young men of what their aim is to be as a biblically mature man. To be a Christ follower is to be a disciple and to be a disciple is to be a disciple maker. Spectator Christianity is is a cultural anomaly It is a grotesque, unbiblical, culturally conditioned and heartless form of Christianity. A biblically mature man sees himself as one in the disciples' continuum. He's discipling others and he's being discipled. That is the pattern of his life. So, godly men are critical to this transition process from boyhood to manhood. And... uh, just to the fathers here, by way of encouragement, you know, these things are not going to happen by osmosis. They're not going to happen in a vacuum. God has so designed it that it is primarily by your words, your deeds, that your boy will go from a boy to a man. And the church, of course, has the responsibility of coming along those men and helping them. I need help. Four boys. I need help. So if we are absent or we fail to demonstrate the right character 
and God-fearing traits, then we can expect that our boys to grow into something less than what God has called them to be. And uh, for those who have completed the process with your own boys, I say with fearful appeal, as you yourselves already know, you're not off the hook. Find a young man that isn't content to merely fog a mirror and pour your life into him. Find your grandsons, find faithful men, teach them, empty yourselves out for them in faith and obedience to the word of the Lord and pray on your knees that God would forge a divine love for them and that he would graciously save them for his own namesake. So lastly, just I want to mention this. These things are the aim. These things are the aim. They're the goal. And we will not fulfill these things perfectly. So I don't want you to walk out of here thinking like, wow, I've got all this to do. I mean, we do, but we don't, right? They're to be understood as supplemental and connected to a species of faith that is genuine and that is fully dependent upon the power and the wisdom that God's grace provides. So we aim for the stars, right? And if we hit the moon, we're content. God looks at our frame, right? He knows who we are. So when we fail, we repent. We pick ourselves back up. We run to the fountain of grace. We re-resolve to do his will. And we move on. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are weighty things. These are weighty things to the church. They're weighty things to fathers. They're weighty things to mothers. And we pray that they're weighty things to our young people. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.